Welcome to the Scuffed Podcast. I'm Adam Bells in Minneapolis. With me is Greg Velasquez in Des Moines. We talk about U.S. men's soccer. Our guest today is Brian Kleiben, the coach of the LA Galaxy Boys U19s, which is one of the key positions in the American talent development ecosystem given the richness of the player pool in Southern California and Clavin's success with the Galaxy. Teams he's coached have made the Development Academy final each of the last two years. Former Clavin players Alex Mendez and Ulianez are key members of the U.S. U-20 squad, which was impressive in CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. And the other youth national teams are also regularly filled with Galaxy names, some of which we discussed. Clavin and I talked on the phone earlier this week. Here's the chat. Welcome, Brian, to the Scuff Podcast. Thanks for being here. How are you today? I'm good, Adam. How are you, man? Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, obviously, big, big, big following, and you guys are doing good work, man. So, so it's a pleasure to, to be on this and contribute in, in any type of way. Yeah, really appreciate it. So you were, a, you were at training just now, just a couple hours ago. Why don't you... Uh... Yeah. yeah, we train in the morning at the Galaxy. So yeah, training, and it's, and it's been pissing rain all day, so... We kind of kept it indoors today. What did you, if you don't mind my asking, what did you guys work on? What did you work on today? This would be the, with the U19s or the U17s or both? Both groups. So obviously in Southern California, we're, we're allergic to the rain, right? So <laughs> literally, Adam, no joke, literally, I don't think it's rained maybe once all year since we started in September. So, But it, it's poured all night. The field's a little flooded. Uh, even our turf field's a little bit flooded. So, I mean, somebody doesn't know how to, how to structure these fields. I'm telling you, anytime it rains here, we have to shut down. So um, it was a gym session. We, we got with our strength and conditioning coach and we haven't played since, I want to say December 15th, 14th. So we just got back to training last week. We got a week under our belts, you know, under all the boys. And I kind of empowered our strength and conditioning guy today. I said, hey man, you know, we never really do this even though they have their gym routines, you know, the players do two or three times a week with him, you know, I'm going to empower you as opposed to going to, we have like a velodrome where, where it's an indoor kind of basketball court type thing, but mm-hmm. the productivity level is, is, is small when we go to the velodrome. So it's more of an enjoyable task. So today I wanted to be productive since we have a fixture this weekend. Oh, you do. Who do you, who are you guys playing this weekend? We play nomads first game of the new year. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's step way back and start by talking about your your background. Where did you grow up? How did you get into soccer? Let's start there. So, I mean, got we got to go way back, man. I'm an old man. <laughs> uh, listen, yeah, I mean, grew up here in Southern California, born and raised here locally in Torrance. Um, my parents, my entire family is is from Argentina, right? Mm-hmm. So they kind of tied the knot, you know, came to the U.S., American dream, um, and started their family here. So I, I was fortunate enough to be born stateside. And, yeah, man, I'm just trying to project as far as I can remember, man, just growing up here. Obviously, it's a culture in Argentina that mm-hmm. soccer is everything. So my parents kind of indirectly hammered that thing home. And, and I was just thinking before we got on, on the call you know, my first clear, clear memory of, of that, of what kind of inspired me and, and my passion for this game. So 
the first thing I could think of is, is the 1986 World Cup. I was like six years old. Hmm. And I remember going to like a, a friend, friend of the family's gathering, more Argentinian people. And like Argentina's playing Germany. And I remember vividly, like the game, them winning, um, the celebration in that household, like all these Argentinian families that had immigrated to the U.S. Literally, oh. they were throwing rice. It was like scenes from a wedding, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like that. So I think that that kickstarted everything. And then just I love playing. So, so you know, my parents didn't know better. Club soccer wasn't what it is today. And I started an AYSO. And, you know, I thought myself to be a, a good player, dominating. And it wasn't until like 15, 16 where my parents were pointing in the direction, hey, you should probably take take them to clubs. So I started playing club soccer. Ironically, for another Argentinian, which was Marcelo Balboa's dad, right? Louis Balboa. Oh, really? Here in, yeah, in Southern California. And this guy was a hard-nosed, typical Argentinian disciplinarian who I think was ahead of his time for obvious reasons. Um, yeah, and then again, Adam, thought myself a good player here domestically, uh, went to Cal State Fullerton, and, and I walked on there because X, Y, Z reasons, not, not too many not too many opportunities to be seen. I went to a private high school, mm-hmm. walked on at Cal State Fullerton, and that's when I kind of, you know, ran into a brick wall with, with, you know, the guy in charge there and, and said, you know what, I think of myself as a top-level player. This is not good. The guy's not utilizing me. So I, I actually went to Argentina for like eight months. Really, and that's where reality hit. That's where reality hit. I went to Rosario. My whole family's from Rosario. They opened up some doors at the second division club there, Central Cordoba. So I went, and one, it was a culture shock, you know, growing up here. Even though I, I go to Argentina every year or two years to visit, mm-hmm. but it was a culture shock in terms of the approach to the game, in terms of the quality, and and that was kind of like a, an awakening that hey, Brian, this you're not going to make it top level. You don't have what it takes. You don't have the quality and you know, as an 18, 19 year old, that that was rough for me. Sure. So I came, I came back here and, and kind of indirectly ran into the coaching part of it. Right. And, and it was, it was odd because I was still young when I started coaching. I think I was 21, 22 when I, you know, started contributing at a club and I liked it almost as much as I did playing. So, you know, just the, the way that I am, Adam, I want to be the best at whatever it is I'm doing. So yeah, I started coaching. I started taking it very serious and, trying to educate myself and, and form myself as a coach, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Let's talk about that coaching journey a little bit. I mean, we don't have to go in too much detail, but just it's been documented. But would you mind running through it? Where did you start and then your path all the way to where you are now? Yeah, really quick. Um, like I, I just go and train with a U19 team that a friend was coaching at the time and and he had to move on and take another job. So like the parents all kind of urged me, it was Orange Soccer Club here, like a local small tier club here in Orange, California. And Hmm. the parents kind of said, Hey, you should take over, you know, you'd be perfect for it. And I was like, you guys think I don't want to do you guys a disservice. No, no, Brian, the kids love you. You'd be great. So I kind of started doing it there. And like I said, I think that was in 03. I started doing that there, Adam. And, and I liked it. I enjoyed teaching the kids. I enjoyed, you know, the challenge of forming a team to my identity, the way I see the game. Right. So mm-hmm. um, in terms of the journey, it started there. Then I started like, you know, dominating the local club scene and, and, and doing well and producing good players. 
fortunately, I, I would scrimmage the, these Chivas USA teams when the academy started, and and you know our little no-name Orange County team would would compete and beat and dominate like this Chivas USA team, who at the time was very very good. Yeah. So you know, grabbed the guy's attention. This Dutch guy, Sasha van der Moos, who who I owe a lot to, opening the doors for me there at Chivas USA. You know, in the future, and and at Chivas again, got down dirty and rolled up the sleeves and try to produce, you know, top level players that, that a lot of people, you know, have, have come to know these days. And that opened the eyes of, of our cross town rivals, the galaxy. So, you know, that's a whole long, you know, courting process that timing was never the right time for me to make the jumps of the galaxy. And until Chivas USA no longer existed, lo and behold, you know, the, the management at the galaxy had a, a unique project um, in terms of, the high school component in terms of having the kids there, you know, 10 to 12 hours a day, five, six days a week, and, and how much more we can affect the player development more so than, than historically here in the U.S. So that came at the right time, and, and man, it's, it's been an exciting journey, you know, since joining the Galaxy. I didn't realize it was such an um, involved program. Is it still that way, 10 to 12 hours? The kids are there 10 to 12 hours a day? Yeah, so... I mean, the typical day, Adam, is the guys roll in around 8 a.m. You know, they, they go to the locker room, they get dressed. The 19s would train first, back-to-back with the 17s. Um, they shower, they go to school, and then in, in the afternoon, um, they twice a week, they'll have an additional gym session, you know, tailored just specifically to each player. And once or twice a week, we'll, we'll do position-specific work with with some of the top talents. So... Yeah, they, they arrive, I'd say, 8 a.m., and they go home, yeah, like 5, 6 p.m. at times. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a full load. And, and obviously, the most important piece for me, Adam, is historically, if you think about youth development in our country, club soccer, you train two or three times a week at most, mm-hmm. you know, an hour and a half each session, and you can't really control much. Five, six hours a week isn't enough, right? Now... I say control, that might not be the right word, but we influence. have a big influence in terms of, yeah, big influence in terms of so many things with the player in terms of, you know, their nutrition and how important that is to be a good professional in terms of their academics. They go to school on site there in the stadium. So we know right away if academically a player doesn't do an assignment or, or fails a test. Historically, Adam, in my whole coaching career, I would find out at the semester's end when the player's parent would be like, hey, Brian, Jason failed three classes. Like we don't want him to play. You need, we need to teach him a lesson this way. Right now we're on top of it. So, you know, pretty much what we can guarantee is that these players will all go to top, top uh, universities and colleges if they don't make the professional route, which, which we think is a good consolation prize. Yeah, for sure. Now I know you've talked about this a lot. You've talked about it with other folks, but I think it'd be cool if you would tell the story of how you snuck into Marcelo Bielsa trainings with the Argentina national team. Can you you talk about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a fun memory. Um, Obviously Bielsa doing his thing now at Leeds and the controversy of what's been going on lately with Spygate, but Uh Bielsa, Bielsa, like I said, when I first started coaching, I want to say it was like an 0203. Bielsa was the coach of the Argentine national team. And, you know, growing up watching that and that being the reference, literally under him, Argentina would 
be the protagonist, would be offensive-minded, would dominate any fixture in any stadium in the world. And and that's a big deal, right? If you're Argentina and you're going to play in Maracanã against Brazil or you're going to play in Madrid against Spain or in Rome against Italy, it didn't matter. That team would run you over. And sometimes the result wouldn't accompany them. But, I mean, Adam, if you create 18 to 20 chances a game and you lose 1-0, sometimes it rolls that way, right? So this is a guy that I wanted to model my teams after. This is a vision that I had. This is a soccer that I liked. So what better way than to go and try and get in and study this thing, right? So a good friend of mine is Peruvian, the Copa America, right? The domestic equivalent of Euro Cup was in Peru. We literally went the whole month. And my main objective is how many sessions can I have access to? <laughs> so the thing I mentioned, the Spygate, Adam, the funny thing is, Almost any job Biesa has ever taken, it is like top secret. The sessions, he builds like his training centers so that, you know, it's covered. Like, like they put up those, those tarps where you can't see through. Like, it's like top secret stuff, right? And even though it wasn't at his training facility, he, he trained in remote places and he put up walls and he put up barriers and, and no press and nobody was able to sneak in and see these things. So... We That's had to be so resourceful. Funny. I had to find a solution. And here I am in the middle of nowhere in Peru. And I'm telling you, like, secluded little villages. And I don't know what the hell. How I'm getting back to the city. How I'm getting back to my hotel. <laughs> so we had to improvise. Like, like, literally, I saw, like, a truck with, like, the Coca-Cola signs pulling in. And I just told some of these guys, these workers, I said, hey, like, I explained to them. I said, hey, like, I'm Argentinian. I want to see the session. You know, here's 20 bucks. And to them, they're like, hop on. No problem. 20 bucks. Get on in, man. So we kind of passed up like we're the Coca-Cola, you know, guys putting up those sponsorship signs. And, you know, we started watching the sessions. So wow. he was actually cool because we didn't look the part. I mean, here we are. We didn't look anything like the other guys putting up the signs. So we kind of were stuck there one, one day, Adam. And I'm telling you, it was 20 or 30 minutes away from the main city. And it was getting dark. And it was scary, right? As a, as a young kid, you're like, what, how, where am I going now? How old were you at this point? Oh, for la, 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 22 years old, 22 okay. years old. Okay. Sorry for the interruption. So, no, no, no worries. So anywho, that's the story of sneaking in. And we actually, you know, kind of talked to some of the players and talked to the assistants and told them who we were and what we were doing. And he was actually cool with it. You know what I mean? He's like, oh, do you guys need a ride? They actually gave us a ride back to town that day. So you know, not a great direct relation because I was timid, I was shy, and know what to say to this guy. This is the guy that I'm modeling myself after, right? And I want my teams to play like his. So, yeah, the good thing was, it was, I would say in that month, I may have seen, seen seven, eight sessions, and it was priceless from the perspective of, of the pressing and how I like, you know, how Bielsa's team repressed and full-court pressed and wanted to win the ball half the field to, to facilitate scoring their own opportunities and to keep the ball as far away from your own goal as possible so I started seeing that and I mean those were my first days as a coach so I started copying that and implementing that with my own teams mm. so cool so were you are you surprised at how well Bielsa is doing at Leeds no surprise at all Adam the, the only thing that we'll have to see in spotlight is you know wherever he's been and whatever teams he's gone whether it's Atletico Bilbao or Marseille like his teams jump out and jump all over you because of that identity, right? The work rate, the pressing, everything that he does, dynamic movements off the ball is offensive soccer. But as a 
unless they have a deep squad, 18, 20, 20, 20 plus players to be able to do that every three days, week in and week out is difficult. So usually his teams jump out and then they fade toward the end of the season. So hmm. it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think they, they've got themselves a good cushion now where they'll be able to sustain it and at least earn promotion, which is the ultimate objective. Right. I was watching, I watched but, their yeah. game, their game against Derby County earlier this week because they, Derby County has a, has an American eligible player right. and uh, boy, Derby County didn't, to have a chance in that game it was it was absolute <laughs> dominance no for sure and, and and yeah everybody wants to to nitpick and now criticize which is fine you know the, the whole guy in the bushes thing but whatever it takes man i mean it's a different culture and like i said he actually sets up his camps his bases in chile he built a whole new training center when he was the head coach of chile to prevent you know in south america that's that's normal, right? In Argentina, that's normal where you're going to get whatever competitive advantage you can get to attain the three points because your job is on the line, right? And at that level, it's all about wins and losses, Adam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so this is kind of a big question, but I'll shoot it anyway. How, how do you watch the game? Imagine I'm a reasonably intelligent fan or one of your new players. What should I be watching for when I watch soccer? <laughs> so there's a way of watching it obviously like like most of us do from a, a a fan point of view a fanatic point of view and spotlight your team and watch and enjoy the spectacle right the way i try to watch is is take it as a, a learning tool right so obviously being in the stadium and watching live you know is a lot better more educational but even watching games on tv you can see things so i don't know I, you could pick one thing that you could dissect like set piece offense is something that that i've always been big on so anytime i'm watching a game and the teams i want to model my teams after you know the the top level teams and coaches in those leagues like i try to see every single thing on set piece offense set piece defense what little minute details are important is it man marking zonal marking is it man and zonal where do they play play players in zones why is it because of percentages of clearances go to the edge of the 18 you know where the corner was served from like all those little details is something that, you know, I want to watch it from that type of lens so that I can get better. Right. If I'm being brutally honest, when, when Argentina plays, I kind of have a mixed effect where I watch it from the fans point of view and I'm yelling and I'm screaming um, Barcelona to an extent I'm that way as well. But, but most of the other games, I, I watch it from my coaching point of view where I want to get better and educate myself. Yeah. Okay. If that makes any sense, it does make sense. Yeah, I mean, we, we could probably talk about that for a, for a couple hours, and I would I would learn from it. But um, you told so talking about American soccer a little bit. You told Mike Watala at Soccer America the following. Uh, I think this was a couple years ago. If Iniesta or Messi were born in the United States, they wouldn't be doing what they do now. Who knows what they'd be doing? Working at a restaurant. End quote. Why would the next Iniesta or Messi born in the U.S. be working in a restaurant, Brian? (laughs) So that's funny because, again, when we talk shop amongst myself and my colleagues and my assistant coaches and these arguments we'd we'd have across the years, right? And, And a frustrating piece historically, at least for me and my perspective, Adam, is there's no right or wrong way to play the game. Right. And, and here domestically, historically, we prioritize, 
you know, the physical attributes in a player, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, collegiate soccer has its own set of rules and, and it's conducive to success of the athlete, you know, and, and the technical aspect is not as important. Most of the coaches that have had success here stateside, in my opinion, have had success in terms of picking players that are athletic, that can win first balls, aerial duels, that could win second balls, that can tackle, that can run a certain 40-yard dash. Mm-hmm. So these other players, these technical players, these, these magicians, these Iniestas, these Messis, like now I look at Bernardo Silva in, in that mold. Like yeah. they would be, by, in, in my opinion, they would have been bypassed because in my 16, 17 years of seeing it from this lens and, and being at all levels here in youth development, those are the players that have been overlooked, right? And the other component is if you put Iniesta on a field with, with 10 athletes, that aren't conducive to his success on the field, he doesn't look like Andres Iniesta, right? If Andres Iniesta gets only seven touches per half as opposed to 55 or 60 touches per half, he can't do what he does. So, you know, those are the optics that I see it from. and, and, And historically, those types of players have been frowned upon. But I want to say and I want to believe times are changing now, Adam, where we're players with those qualities you know, are, are being looked at in a different light now, you know, uh, what we're two days post MLS draft and, and Frankie Amaya was the number one pick in the draft. So you mm-hmm. can nitpick every which way that the draft was, you know, wasn't very talented or Frankie got picked because of his U20 success or whatever you want to say, never in a million years would this have happened. Not even five years ago, not 10 years ago, Franuel Amaya would have never been the number one pick in the draft. So, that's exciting. You know, Franora Maya, I doubt would have been on the U20 national team a few years ago. So, yeah. you know, I think we're, we're, we're growing and, and talking to some of the colleagues that, that are running the youth national teams, um, Tab and recently Kurt Anolfo has been involved. You know, they've confessed that we've been doing this a long time, right? Especially a guy like Kurt who's been in the league for so many years. Um, and he's like, Brian, it's amazing to me how, how technical, how, how much quality – is comes from every single player that that we call up now you know i mean some are better than others but it's amazing it's amazing how much quality is involved in these players so adam again youth development's growing the investment from the league is is important u.s soccer you know seeing it from a different lens is important and, and i feel like we're moving in the right direction Speaking, speaking of players who are technical, but maybe their top quality isn't um, winning aerial duels, you coached Efra, Efra Alvarez, uh, Ulianez, and Alex Mendez from the time they were 10 or so, thereabouts, right? How, how did you meet those kids? Uh, okay, so yeah, transitioning there, that goes back to, to my first steps, right? So I was coaching this orange team. I had success. Then I made a transition to this club that's now called Total Football Academy before it was called Barcelona USA. Okay. So the guy running that, you know, grew to know me, formed a great relationship with me. His name's Paul Walker. He still runs that club. And he called me in. He's like, Brian, you know, I want to start this, this thing good. I want to do things the right way. We had taken trips to Spain 
from a coaching education perspective, we being me, him, and, and a couple of staff members. And then again, after the Bielsa thing, then I saw this. So I was like, wow, this is incredible. Like, I want to shape myself like this dominant Barca team. Right? That was right before Pep took over. Hmm. So fast forward to how I came across these guys. You know, I was employed to, to be the director and oversee that Barca USA program. We started it small, U9s, U10s, U11s. And we took those three teams, started implementing the methodology there. And yeah, they were little kids at first. Adam. It, it was a tough sell because I was doing U19s, U18s, U17s. I want to be a professional coach. And then this guy pitched me this idea of coaching these little kids. So yeah. at first I was like, no chance. And he's like, hey, just come out, you know, watch it. Like, like run a session. I'm sure you'll like it. The kids are sick. All right, whatever. I did it as a favor to my friend. And, and lo and behold, I get there and I run the session. And these guys are they're quality. It's natural talent. They're technically proficient, Adam. It's, you don't have to teach these guys how to, you know, kick a soccer ball, right? At those ages, you know, most nine-year-olds, and I had no experience with that age, it's like, get, get out of here. I'm not going to regress and go teach a kid how to kick a soccer ball, right? right? So lo and behold, those kids were Alex and, and Uli and a bunch of these kids that everybody knows nowadays that, that are having enormous success. Ephra was in a different club. He was at Cosmos, and yeah, you know, I started doing my due diligence and scouting and, and seeing what, what else was in our market, and the first time I saw Ephra, it was unbelievable. You know, it was love at first sight in that sense that I had never seen something like this. He was, he was two years younger. He's like seven. Huh. And he was just completely dominant. Like you go watch the first time I saw him play, it was in a local youth tournament and he was playing up two years and I go watch his game and he was playing maybe the third or fourth best team of the age group. And he scored like six or seven goals and they won like nine zero. And just what he was doing on the field was not normal. So I had a relationship with the family already having coached his older brother. And yeah, we, we convinced him to come over immediately. And I mean, this kid, we all see the, the special qualities and what this, this guy can become. Yeah. So it sounds like there was, there was a lot of ability there to work with when you started coaching those boys. But what was, you know, past that, what was the secret to their development? Lots of, lots of rondos and tough love. <laughs> no, I heard, I heard Alex and, and, and the tough love part. So yeah, obviously I think the, the big contributions that we can give talented players like that is, you know, a good structured environment. So obviously the, the Barce Barcelona methodology sprinkled with, with Bielsa and, and, and his vertical play and identity intensity, you know, I think forged these guys into, into the players they are today, right? Right place at right time. So yeah, man, I, everything from the technical aspect we talk about rondos yeah those kids had natural ability but you know doing this every day for eight nine ten years you know polishes you up in so many aspects so that's maybe a better question for them if they think it was useful or not and and in terms of being in a possession team we talked about iniesta wouldn't look like iniesta if he was playing on i don't know new england revolution right so you know forming the team having this identity, having Ephra and Alex on the ball a hundred times per game, you know, since they were youth players, they would touch the ball and see the ball and love the ball and, and kind of implementing, you know, a little tactical acumen in terms of, you know, how to play the game, how to see the game from a different perspective, not just go out and play pick a ball. So these guys are obviously super, super intelligent. 
they were always open and hungry to learn more. And I mean, if we're dissecting each one, Ephra is just a complete natural talent, right? And and he has a lot of work to do in terms of being a good pro. Uli and Alex, obviously different, natural talented as well, but a lot of his acquired talent, like Alex has worked so, so hard to be where he is today. And Uli has worked so, so hard in terms of, you know, outside of the normal team training session. So the the credit is entirely up to them and those guys being hungry to to put in the extra work and get get to where they are today. Yeah. I do want to talk about more about them later, but just it's just interesting the point you make about Iniesta not being able to beat Iniesta if he's on a field with 10 guys who can't play the way he does. That's it's, it's something that's almost unique about soccer, isn't it? About football. It's because um, like in basketball, LeBron James could be on a on a court with four guys who aren't that good, and he's still LeBron James. But <laughs> it's, it's not that yeah, it's not that way in soccer. I just wonder if you thought about that. Yeah. No, I know I do think about that all the time, and I mean there there has to be examples like maybe Ronaldo. Ronaldo, I don't think Ronaldo would would be the same Ronaldo in the Barcelona system, but I think Ronaldo is pretty adaptable to anything because you know like LeBron, he's a physical specimen mm. and he's acquired all this Ronaldo's put in a ton of work to get to where he is today I mean I'm not on the inside seeing this stuff but the guy you know when when he was at sporting and then at Man U he wasn't a goal scoring machine he he was you know trickery and quick and fast and pace mm. and like over the years he's adapted himself to okay I don't I'm not gonna have a pace my entire life now I'm gonna be an assassin in the box so I'm not a basketball specialist. I grew up watching, you know, Jordan a little bit, a little bit of Kobe, a little bit of LeBron now, but I see what you mean. I mean, maybe it's the physical attributes that Iniesta can just be a dominant force, you know, playing in Major League Soccer without the right environment around him. Is your is your experience with those, with Efra, Uli, and Alex, um, is that scalable for American soccer? It sounds like it was such an intense relationship and, and uh, environment. And so specific, you know? No, I, yeah, I, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I think the, the potential, time will only tell in, in terms of where these guys end up and, and how, how well they, they establish themselves and, and what kind of careers they have. But I have full confidence that all three of those guys, because of their, their level of talent, their level of dedication, and ultimately hunger is everything. Mentality is everything. I think maybe Alex stressed the mentality piece and that's, that's what he appreciated the most. Like, I don't know if you can duplicate it unless you're in the right environment, right? These MLS clubs are providing that. I mean, there's so many clubs that are investing so many resources. I think I heard Martin, some, some snippets from Martin. And if you haven't been to Utah, they have an amazing setup, amazing yeah. facilities. Yeah. Like Mar- Martin has had a history of producing good, good players over the last, like you, he noted over the last eight years. And, I mean, then you go to FC Dallas and, and, and what Lucci's done in, in his short time there and the players they've produced there. So I want to say, like I said, we're, we're moving in the right direction and, and there are good examples of it, right? right. Hopefully here in LA, we continue to, to do work, good work and keep producing good pros and, and hopefully it translates to, to first team ball here. Yeah, the academy. So the academy keeps pumping out good players. I'd, I'd like to talk about a couple of them. Um, can you tell us about uh, Julian Araujo? Is 
Is he a right back or a center back long term? And do you expect him to play a lot for the USL side this year? That's a great question. So that that's a question we ask ourselves internally. That's a question that I think the national team staff is still asking themselves. Where is he best suited for today? And then obviously, where is he best suited long term? And and you know, as developers of talent, we have to go for the latter. So Julian is a kid that I've seen for many, many years, right? He, he's playing pretty much in the same age group as, as the teams we've been coaching. So I've known him for, I don't know, six, seven years. And he's a Santa Barbara kid. So he was a couple hours away. It didn't make sense at the time for him to, to make the jump so young. You know, sometimes family situations and transportation are, are a barrier. And residency, not having actually a, a full, full-blown residency at the time was a barrier. So, yeah, it took a couple of years of courting, you know, to, to finally get Julian into our environment. So he's here. We're excited. He is a monster, tenacious defender, and he is ultra athletic, Adam. Yeah. He needs to polish up the technical side of his game. Um, he needs to polish up the end product. So if he's playing right back, he projects well. He gets himself in good positions. He combines well. He can take you off the dribble well. He's athletic enough to beat you. But then the what next, you know, is the cross going to mm-hmm. give you an end product? Is his finishing there? Can he pick out a teammate? So he knows very well. We've discussed it and we've got a plan for him to, to improve that aspect. That today he's better at center back, you know, but ultimately tomorrow and being in a, in a league and in a country where size is important in those positions, right, for the style of play that, that most teams have, mm-hmm. I don't know if he's going to be able to do it at center back. He does have great timing in terms of his, his aerial duels. So it's going to be tough for him at center back. We're, we're, we're aiming at right back. And, and in terms of the USL, yeah, he's projected to, to be a, an impactful player, a, guy, a, a big protagonist this season. Awesome. I'll be watching. What about, what about Kobe Hernandez on the other side of the back line? He plays left back for you. He was really impressive, I thought, with the U17s at the Nike Friendlies playing center back. Can you sort of describe him as a player, what, what his strengths and weaknesses are? No, Kobe's another one that I've known and I've tried to take to, to these Barcelona trips with my team since he was eight years old. So Kobe, we got at U14 three years ago, I think, four years ago. And listen, he's come such a long way. This is a player that was like an attacking mid, left winger, forward as a youth player. He just trusted the process, Adam, and, and he's got special attributes. His left foot is special. His tenacity in 1v1 duels is impressive. His composure on the ball is impressive. But we converted him to a left back, and he never once questioned it. His family never once questioned those motives. Here we have a guy that's dominant attacking play, and we're like, hey, man, you're going to be a left back. If you trust me, you will be a national team left back. You will be a professional left back. And Toby's been brilliant. His growth. Uh, in the last several years, been brilliant. I can go back, rewind a year. You said the Nike friendlies this year. He was tremendous. I agree with you at center back. The year before, prior to that, um, it was the same O2 group that was in the Nike friendlies. Kobe had never received the national team call up. Uh, the national team staff, Sean and Hack, came to watch, you know, our U17s play, kind of like desperate and saying, "Hey, man, our pool's not great. We, you know, we need help. You got anything for us?" and and I'm always honest with these guys. So I said, here, this is the guy. So they sat and they watched the game and it wasn't an impressive performance by Kobe. And they're like, yeah, Brian, I don't think so. Huh. And, you know, lo and behold, we, we, have, we have this trust between 
you know, hack myself, Sean, myself, because every time I've sent them a player, it's because they're ready. They're ready to be a protagonist in their team. And I said, guys, I'm putting my neck on the line. This kid is good enough. So they called them in. They've loved them. Fast forward a year. Yeah, he's he's been brilliant for the U.S. Uh, 17s, be it in Mexico, be it in England, be it at the Nike friendlies and playing at a position because as a youth player, he can get away with playing center back. But right. as a professional, he's clearly going to be a, a top top level left back. Yeah, he's it. Yeah, he's done remarkably well that playing out of position. Um, who else should we we be watching for from the Galaxy Academy? I don't want to get you in trouble by mentioning some guys and mentioning others. So if you want to pass on the question, I totally get it. But no, um, so so Adam and, and and the unique thing is what we always preach, and you know we talk about team first mentality. So like I said, there's a laundry list of guys that that you guys know based on their pedigree already with the youth national team, and there's some guys that, that are coming behind those guys who are incredibly talented and, you know, head down working. So I think we have, we have a good base of guys, you know, that, that are going to be making that jump sooner than later, whether it's on a national team level or, or, you know, getting looks at Galaxy 2 as, as 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds. So instead of naming individual guys, I think there's too many to name, Okay. Um, but yeah, there's, there's guys that you sh- that we should all be excited about that, you know, the pipeline is still healthy, you know, with, within our oldest portion of the academy. How much, well, let me ask about one guy in particular, Cameron Dunbar. He was, he got to play sparingly at the Nike friendlies just a little bit, but I thought he did, he did pretty well in the time that he was out there. What, what opportunities for growth does he have as a player and where do you see him? Where do you see his career going? No, Cam has grown up so much, Adam, over the course of the two years here. And even though he's diminutive in size, he he is a true winger. He's a difference maker. And, mm-hmm. and we've progressed him already to the 19s. And he's been making a big, big difference in the 19s level, which was a jump for him. He's kind of, uh, he's kind of eliminated that phase. And, and yeah, even when we have inter-squad or scrimmages with G2, he, he's, been, he's been very, very good. So... He's obviously performed to a level where the national staff has taken a look. I thought he did he did well in his little cameos at the 17s. So yeah, I think it's it's a player that'll be in that pool and will make a push for for qualifying and hopefully for the World Cup for that group. Okay, great. How much say do you have in who gets called up to play with the USL side? Um. Yeah, I mean, between Mike and myself, we obviously have a very fluid relationship that we've built over the years here in the academy. So we talk daily. We dissect sessions daily. We talk about player performances daily. Um, and then, you know, then it's it's also a position-specific thing. So if G2's got, you know, guys, you know, we have Didi Traore playing left back, they kind of, it's, it's kind of difficult to get a young guy minutes where Didi needs those minutes right now, right? If if Efron needs the minutes at the 10, it's kind of difficult to get, you know, an academy guy those minutes. So a lot of it's position specific and a lot of it is, you know, throwing young players in the fire when they're not going to be successful is not ideal. So we talk about it daily. Um, yeah, in terms of Mike and myself, it, it's excellent. It's an excellent relationship to, to get the players moved on from one level to the next. What's been the change at the Galaxy since Dennis DeClosa came on? From the outside, it looks very positive. But what's the what's the insider view? Adam, it's it's exciting times, right? It's exciting times, and I don't just say that 
you know, to applaud the new boss. I say it because the guy's experienced at all these levels, mm -hmm. right? He's experienced being at Chivas USA with that academy set up, with Chivas Guadalajara. He was the director of Tigres Academy. He was the sporting director of Chivas Guadalajara. He's with all the Mexican youth national teams. You know, he's been with the Mexican senior team. So he's done it at the level, you know, at the youth youth level. He's done it at the professional level. And he has a ton of experience in seeing what translates and what doesn't. So, I mean, it's exciting times for us to have a guy of Dennis's profile to lead the charge, you know, to lead the charge in these important times where, where we've, we've done, I believe we've done an excellent job in, in terms of producing good players and, and how those players can transition now to, to first-team football. Yeah, that's something the Galaxy's been criticized a lot for, for not having a great pipeline to the first team. What's, is, is, is that going to change? And, I mean, what's your take on it? I think so. I think I think better days are ahead of us, you know, with Dennis and now with Guillermo, who, you know, I haven't spoken to Guillermo at all lately, but I'm sure that that'll come next week when they when their preseason starts in Argentina. If you're if you're good enough, that's that's it. You play. And, and Dennis in, in, in his Dutch culture, it's the same way. And I think we're getting there in the United States and, and even south of the border, Mexico, where historically Mexican wouldn't play young kids, either Mexican clubs. So. Right. If you're if you're good enough, you're old enough, and and obviously I think maybe Dennis's predecessors, you know, maybe their view was tarnished with with failure from previous you know crops and previous homegrown players, and those guys not being good enough. So that's that's their measuring stick. So maybe they're worried that the next guys are the same because that's the only thing they've ever seen. So mm -hmm. hopefully with Dennis, you know, that changes and and the opportunity is afforded to to the players who are ready for that. Okay, encouraging. As most people who listen to this podcast will know, you you've brought teams to the Development Academy final the last two years at different, you know, the U17s two years ago, the U19s last year. You've said before that the level of competition top to bottom in the DA wasn't good enough. Are you pleased with the way it's been restructured to allow more scheduling freedom and and, and just even more broadly speaking how would you rate the level of the DA? So, good question. Um, again, I think the standard in our jobs is to produce top-level talent and, and, and produce professional soccer players. So, uh, an enormous component, something that I've seen through my experience, Adam, is, is the level of competition has to be better, right? I can honestly say when we, you know, the training environment and culture that, that we provide at the Galaxy I think is fantastic. I think is on par with any here domestically and, and even internationally. I think once we get to 15, 16, 17 year olds, the, the professional prospects, we suffer because our players are playing maybe in five competitive fixtures throughout the year. You know, mm -hmm. if we have a 40, 50 game season, only five of those demand that the players bring their absolute best or you get punished for it. Mm. Whereas, I've seen like the standard, you know, I, I see these, these teams, the Brazilians, Cruzeiro and Flamengo and the Argentinians River Plate or Independiente or Argentino Juniors, or even the Mexican clubs, Cholos and America and Chivas. They're, they're in wars week in and week out. Their top players are in real games where one mistake is punished. 
Hmm. And that's what professional soccer is all about, Adam, is, is being mistake-free and, and knowing that if you're not concentrated and executing to the top of your ability, you will get punished. And that's just not good enough. So fast forward to the DA, when we only get five, hopefully five of those top, top level games where every play matters per season, our players suffer. So I think it's taken good strides. I think it is more competitive than it was a few years back, but we need better still. I mean, even though they've eliminated the strength of schedule and we're not taking trips to play youth amateur clubs that, that the score lines wouldn't be competitive, I still think we need more. You know, something that the only step we could take on our end, Adam, was playing players up. And, and yeah. we would do that when the players were ready. Like, Efra was always ready. Efra was always playing up and no problem, right? And he was having success. We're almost forcing the issue that we're playing almost entire teams up, right? And, and, and that's, that levels the playing field. And that makes it ultra competitive because the physical aspect, once you're 14, 15, or 15, 16, or 16, 17, there is a, there's a massive difference. So that's the steps we've taken internally, but domestically, yeah, we, we got to still do a better job of, of having competitive games for our players and, and international competition is everything. Is it fair to say you're sacrificing results to do that? Like, uh, or sacrifice or sacrificing results as a priority to play players up in that way? That it's a tricky question, Adam, because, Bottom line, we're ultra competitive and we want to win every single time we step out on the field. So mm-hmm. I'd be lying to you if I said, oh, yeah, it's all about development. No, we want to develop to win, right? And, and that's the culture of the LA Galaxy. That's the culture that I believe in. When you step in competitive sports, no matter what it is, we're playing to win. So have our results suffered because of that? Yes. I mean, if you look the last few seasons where you've, you've noticed, you know, we've gone to the national championship game each year the last three years, each year we get into the playoffs, like as a 32 seed, the last seed of the playoffs or, right. or, you know, in, in the fourth tier of the draw, you know, because our record isn't great. You know what I mean? And, and we'll, we'll take that hit. We'll sacrifice. Cause you know, we're pushing our players, whether it's the best 17, 18, 16s are playing G2 or training G2, then we'll take that hit, you know, right. Within our own environment, we have the luxury Adam that we all train at the same time in the morning the first team, the second team, and the academy. So, And we're all at the same location where I think we might be the only club in the country that does that. So we have no continuity. If I'm being frank, you know, for during the MLS and USL seasons, we don't have our players during the week. They train or, or with, you know, with our first team, our second team, and then maybe I get them on a Friday and they do the tactical walkthrough and then we play. So. Huh. You know, our results have suffered because of that. Our results have suffered because of because of playing players up. But ultimately, that doesn't matter. What matters, Adam, is, you know, producing good high-level soccer players. And, and I think we've done a good job of that. What do you think of the rumored uh, MLS Academy League? Would that, would that help solve the problem of uh, not enough highly competitive fixtures? Uh, I mean, it'd probably, yeah, it'd probably be a step in the right direction. Uh, I have, yeah, I have very little to say cause I'm not in those conversations and, and obviously the biggest knock has always been, you know, our country is massive, Adam. So, yeah. you know, the cost, the resources that would have to go into such a thing yet, yeah, right. You know, in terms of travel alone. So I think it's a great idea from a competitive point of view and, and obviously there's going to be 
some hurdles to, to, to ultimately get that done. Okay. One last sort of academy question. How has the presence of Los Angeles FC impacted the youth soccer landscape in, you know, in Los Angeles and Los Angeles area? I think it's nothing but good, Adam. Mm. I mean, something that we talk about competitive games, something we lack is competitive culture. So now it's not just the best players in LA will be LA Galaxy players, right? So it has to ramp up our scouting efforts. Now it's not just a gimme that we're going to dominate the local scene. You know, it, it makes us coaches better in terms of, what we do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Now it's not just a gimme on so many levels. Like I, I, I could go on and on. It, it's just a good thing. And that's a topic we've addressed. That's something that as a competitive person, I embrace. And, and if you want to scale it to, to the national team side, I've, I've heard so many things lately, even including you on the dual nationals. I think, you know, the Jonathan Gonzalez thing, as much as it's pained us or the Efrain Alvarez, it's pained us. That's better now. Now people are taking the steps to to compete for player services, and mm-hmm. and ultimately in our market that makes us better. And ultimately, you know, across the country, it'll make us better as as a as a country, as a federation. And in terms of the clubs, right, and and some of the top prospects in our country have departed over the last year abroad. Like it makes us more competitive to to make sure that we're doing a good job to to secure these player services. So competition is good. I'm just looking forward to when there's going to be a unite the U19 LAFC versus Galaxy match is streamed online and it's a derby. You know, I'm I'm looking forward to that. Day. <laughs> you like and a, I both. You and I both. Those, those, those will be those will be exciting games. And, and look, it's going to create that. So so obviously on the first team level, we're a year into it. Our first team, you know, in terms of the head to head, did better than they did or win in two ties, but. Mm-hmm. But they actually made the playoffs this year. So I think it's it's starting to create that competitive culture. It's going to take time for it to be a real derby. But, you know, we'll get it there, Adam. All right. Let's move to the national team a little bit. You've watched, you probably watched as much of the U20s and U17s as anybody in the country, I gather. How would you grade the youth national team programs right now? Maybe start with the U20s. Yeah, the U20s, I followed obviously closely in the CONCACAF championships, having having some of my former players involved and, and current players, so dominant. I mean, if I could pick a word, just dominant, I, I don't recall... Our, our youth national teams ever been so dominant in, in a CONCACAF tournament. Yes, the structure was different. Yes, we're playing against some minnows, mm-hmm. but we can't choose who we're playing against, Adam. And, and if we're playing against somebody inferior, we have to be dominant. And that team was dominant. You know, I point towards something I said earlier where, where guys that have been doing that for a long time at that level, they see the difference, right? They see the difference in quality of players coming through, in terms of the development of, of the MLS teams and how much we're putting into it. Like residency has, has been abolished, right? And, and that's something that was scary for U.S. soccer to do. And, mm-hmm. and if, I think if we look over the, the last year since it's been gone, I think it's been positive, nothing but positive steps. So 
having such a big pool as well. So the 20s, I think you follow very closely, and you mentioned there's no tier one players, Josh Sargent and Timo Weah and, and Jonathan Heyman and Durkin and Carlton and all these guys who, who on paper were locks for this team in this tournament. And it's opened the door for, for other guys that may have not been locks. And, and look, the team's still dominating. So it's exciting to have a, a big pool of players and, and to have not suffered without having some big names in, in, that, in that team in that tournament. Right. What's a, what's a reasonable expectation for the U-20s at the World Cup this year, do you think? I mean, I think we have to wait and see what the draw looks like. I don't even know what the draw is. I know South American qualifying is, is starts later this week, maybe. So, I mean, in these tournaments, Adam, a lot has to do with your draw and a lot has to do with, with your roster and who gets released and who doesn't and how long you have these guys under your belt to, to actually form chemistry, pick a lineup, train. National team ball is hard, man. It's not easy to uh, implement an identity as, as when you work with a club and you have the guys, you know, daily. So right. I think it's going to be maybe come back to that question once the groups are announced and, and I'll, I'll go ahead and gamble and give you my opinion. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Let's make it a date. So here's a weirdly detailed question. Would you play Richie Ledesma and Alex Mendez as dual eights for that squad with, you know, with like a single pivot behind them? And what would, what would be the disadvantages to that? I mean, I never had both those guys together in training, but, but knowing those guys as well as I know them, absolutely. I think, I think they're both conducive. Their play is conducive to, to having a success, successful dominant midfield. Uh, from what it sounds like, they they really like playing together. They they really respect each other's game, and mm-hmm. I, I was fortunate to see the the very first duel between those guys in a GA Cup game a few years back in Colorado, where they got into it big time during the game. It was heated, and and that's kind of the first day I actually found out who Richie was. I said, "Oh, this kid's not bad, and he's got some some bite, and he's got some flavor, and he's got personality." Because like like you stated, he's kind of come out of nowhere, and he's performed so. Back to your question, absolutely, and I think that's something as as national team fans and supporters, we should all be excited about that that partnership. Yeah, I guess my my the the doubt that I have about it is the I guess maybe betrays my Americanness, but like I think well maybe that'll be a little bit of a soft midfield, you know, like it'll be easy to play through them. Does is that a valid concern? I. I- yeah, I, I could see why you're saying that, Adam, but I don't think so. I think, I think uh, both those guys are actually pretty nasty for being as as slight and technically sound as they are. They have the bite, and and again, if you have a team that's built around guys that can own the ball, mm-hmm. the less defending those guys will have to do. So I think that that they have enough bite to to be successful at the international level, and I think that's something that even that coaching staff who's seen them live and under their, their training has seen that, that Richie is nasty and can play the six or the eight or the 10. And Alex, even though at the CONCACAF championship, like I felt like there was no real need for him to have to be a nasty guy and right. get into a tackle with a guy from Suriname or, or Barbados or wherever they were playing. Cause it wasn't needed. And, you know, if you go into those tackles, you probably come out with a broken leg. Right. So <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah I, I, I think, you know, if the right team is, is set up, 
yeah, it could be a team that, that's dominant, bosses the game, owns the ball, and, and those guys will, will have a lot to do with that. Yeah, I mean, I got to say, I'll just, I'll just put myself out there. There's nothing I'm more excited about than seeing those two together in the midfield at the U20 World Cup in U.S. soccer this year. I'm hey, that, we're, we're all there, man. And it's just an exciting group, right? If you follow it like you have, Adam, and, and, and kind of made a lot of people aware of, of that group, it's exciting. And who knows if, if they get Sargent or, or Soto or Wea or Tadegui or Uli or how that looks, but there's a lot of attacking talent. So I think it's a team that, that could do, that could do damage. So, so uh, one more question on Alex. Uh, I assume you're in touch with him. And I, I wonder if, as you, you know, from your perspective, what does he need to do as a player to take that next step? Maybe, you know, maybe even make a first te- team debut for Freiburg this year. I don't know. I have no knowledge that that is likely or unlikely i'm just saying what does he need to do as a player to take that next step no so so guys like alex and and even efra or uli per se they've 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 i don't know how to say they've burnt the stage of usl soccer here domestically right usually it takes any player a, a big transition period a season two seasons and what's special of those guys is that they burned in a matter of games. In a few games, not only were they comfortable on the field, they were dominant on the field as 16, 17, 18-year-olds now. Mm-hmm. So I think Alex and his mentality and his quality, you know, will, will obviously show through over there in Germany. And, and obviously, I think the stamina point of view and, and being able to cover more ground in, in, in a league like Germany and, yeah, the things you've noticed the first few steps when he closes down or, or when somebody's going to dribble past him, being able to, to mix it up and, and, and have a better first few steps. That's a deficiency, but it's hard because we can nitpick any player, you know. Sure. If you nitpick, if you nitpick Tony Cruz, Tony Cruz can't really do that either, right? <laughs> or, if you want, yeah, if you want to nitpick guys, like this, everybody has deficiencies and holes in their game. So, you know, something that, that Ziggy – you know, would always remark to Mike and I and his experiences is, hey, yeah, it's good to polish a player's weaknesses, but if you're going to be a good pro and a top-level pro, keep strengthening what they're good at. So hmm. Alex has to continue to get, you know, be an assassin and finish plays and get himself in position to finish plays. His passing, his vision is incredible. He's got to keep building off that. I mean, he's just got to be a good pro, and I think he's got a good head on his shoulders and, and will do those things. Yeah, I, I just for the record, I nitpick. I only nitpick players that I love. So, um, no, 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 yeah. Hey, hey, Adam, I am the most critical guy on planet Earth when it comes to nitpicking all our players here in the galaxy, whether it's academy, G two, or even first team. It's harder for me first team G two because I'm not the one seeing them in their training mire every single day. But when it comes down to our players that we're developing on the daily, yeah, we have post game post session staff meetings and we nitpick the living shit out of our players so <laughs> no problem and being from an argentine background critics is everything massive critics so these guys have grown up being criticized so that's another step in terms of their mentality where i don't think you know having a bad game or criticized by the press is going to affect them and their performance right 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 no problem and you you need to continue to criticize that 
I think you're being too nice. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, how about Yuli? How about Uli? What's he What's he got to do to take that next step? And do you have a, any kind of update on him? What's up with him? So last I heard, Uli, yeah, was, was Europe-bound like it's been rumored. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the main, main thing with Uli, again, if we're highlighting his strength, and it's something that, that Tab really got out of Uli uh, when he got called into the 20s. When he got called in, he was a bit timid, shy. He wasn't really, you know, the guy, you know, on paper. And he played timid and shy. He played safe. He'd get the ball and he'd pass. Mm-hmm. And Tab told me, he's like, hey, Brian, like, I told Uli, like, this is what makes you special, man. There's not too many like you, if any at all, in our country. Get the ball and go at your guy. Go, 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 go. And if you fail, get it the next time and go again. And and Uli has shown bravery at the academy level with that. He's shown bravery in terms of the USL level at that. And he's shown bravery at his own age group internationally with the national team. So it took somebody like Tab to to kind of straight up tell him, like, Uli, you know, this is what we need from you. Do the job because you're good. Yeah. And ever since that conversation, like, he's just taken off with the 20s as well. So how that applies to Uli, you know, in terms of the 20s, the national team future and, and his career, he has to continue to do that. Like, because he is elusive. He is talented. There's very few guys like that, Adam. Mm-hmm. And obviously, polishing up is finishing because at that next level, if you have a chance, it has to be a goal. Right, he's so good at beating his guy wide and serving with his left foot. You could argue that he's not left-footed. He's right. good at coming inside, combining, finishing. But there's one thing: doing it at, at these lower levels. If you're going to be a big-time pro and you're going to make, you know, the the big the big bucks, you got to be an assassin. So that comes from hard work. That's that's acquired. That's not natural. So he's got to put the work in there. And yeah, obviously he could be better at defending. He could be better at tracking. He could get better in the air. There's so many things, but again, to polish up what he's really, really good at and make sure that he's top, top level at that. So mm-hmm. that's what I, I, I would urge. If, if he was still here with me, that's what I continue to do. Okay. Well, moving up to the senior national team, I'm curious what you make of the Greg Burhalter hiring. Good, good choice, bad choice. What's, what, are you, what will you be watching for? Um. Listen, I think it's an improvement from, from what his predecessors and what we had recently in terms of mm-hmm. he's a guy that's tested himself abroad, that's had a career abroad, that's seen the games from a different lens. And, I, you know, I'm guilty of not watching the Columbus crew, you know, as much as other people have probably seen it. So I don't know it very well. But I do know that, that Greg is one of the few that, that has an identity, that, that imposes that identity on his teams, that – you know, wants to have the ball and own the ball, that wants to, you know, be aggressive in terms of creating goal-scoring chances and, and ball recovery. So I think it's an improvement on what we have, man, and, and I'm excited to see it, you know what I mean? Because we can all talk about what we're going to do, Adam, in terms of implementation and execution. That's a different story. You know, that's that's what makes the, the top, top bosses like Pep or like Bielsa or, or the anybody else that, that, that anyone looks up to the guys that are consistent and dominant, that's what makes them different, right? So mm-hmm. I'm excited to see it. You know, January camp, I don't think will be the best indicator because he won't have all his pieces at his disposal. But on the flip side, he's had two or three weeks to work. So, you know, I said it earlier, being a national team boss is difficult because 
unless you have a clear idea and identity and know how to transmit that and, and execute it, it's hard to do it, you know, when players fly from across the world and have to do regen when they land and have one real training session before a World Cup qualifier, right? So these are the moments where, where I think Greg is going to kind of put a stamp on it. And I think the Gold Cup or, or, or tournaments like that or Copa America where you have the team under your belt for a month is where you could do real work. Yeah, I sort of wonder if we shouldn't have a, a higher bar for him for these friendlies coming up because because of that that three week training time he has. But I won't I won't make you answer that question. Uh, no, no. So so I agree, Adam. Like, yeah. Listen, in these three weeks, I think I think we'll actually see a team with an identity because he's had time to work and and impose that, and he selected the players here domestically who fit his vision the best. So I think we should see a a good group maybe they don't lack quality without our top players you know the quality won't be there but the style of play should be should be there from the get-go so i'm excited to see it how much limitation do you think he'll have imposing that style of play like you know a possession sort of dominating style of play given the relative weakness of the u.s player pool you know i'm a i'm a huge fan of u.s players but still you know relative to most european countries we, we don't have the quality that they have can you do that? Can you do that kind of style of play with slightly or even significantly lesser quality on the field? I mean, listen, I think so, Adam. I'm, I'm, I'm a big proponent of whatever style of play you want to have, imposing it independent of, of who you're up against. So fortunately for us, we aren't against super powerhouses on the daily, right? We, we're in CONCACAF. We're on paper and with our player pool that you mentioned should be able to to dominate these games and and impose that identity and that style of play i see it happening and i think we're we're going to have a successful campaign our objective i think all our objectives here domestically is can we get to the level to do that against brazil against argentina against spain against germany against france we're still far off it that's the reality right but Mm -hmm. we have to we have to aim high adam we have to aim high and we have to build that culture from day one. You know, I, I'm going to share a story that, that Juan Carlos Osorio, right? Uh, the former Mexican boss, he's, he's in charge of Paraguay now, right? So I had the fortune of speaking to him for like an hour last year here at Subhub Center. And he shared an anecdote, right? Because he's, he's a massive Biersa follower as well. So he's like, Brian, you know, I asked Biersa for advice you know, in terms of my setup and what I want to impose with Mexico and what I want to do and how I could do it like he did with Chile, you know, because with Chile, Biesa took a team that was, I want to say last or, or, or penultimate in, in World Cup qualifying in South America, His, the, the cycle previous to him taking over. Yeah. And he transformed Chile. It took, it was a process, but he transformed them to being bosses and, and qualifying for the World Cup and narrowly losing to Spain and Brazil in, in South Africa in 2010. So he's like, I want, I, I want to duplicate that formula. And Bielsa's like, listen, fantastic. I'm going to share everything with you, but you know, you give, you give me too much credit. Back to the word com- competition. He said that Bielsa said, Hey, by default in Chile, by default, we have to be good because we play Argentina, we play Brazil, we play Uruguay, we play Colombia we can't not be good and competitive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just that, that culture of competitiveness makes you better, right? When you're the U.S. and Mexico, you're the bosses, you're the protagonists, you're the giants. 
and you're playing whoever, Trinidad and Panama and Nicaragua. So he's like, you can't duplicate it here. It's impossible. You know, you need to have a more competitive, you know, schedule and environment that obligates your your ecosystem to to produce what what we you know replicated in Chile. So that was his short answer. Like Brian, competition is everything, right? The other interesting thing, hmm. you know, that applies to to us and U.S. soccer and that he shared was, yeah, ultimately, Adam. We're, 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 our hands are tied in, in, in a lot of aspects in terms of having an identity, right, here stateside, where historically I've heard the argument, you know, we're such a big region, you know, in certain parts of the country, we play in the snow, we can't play because of the snow, and in California, you guys could train year-round, and if we could make just a national team based on California players, we might be better, but that's not us, that's not the United States, that's not equality, so Merging all this stuff, I guess, is, is a difficult task and, and one that, that the Federation believes in great to, to ultimately uh, deliver. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know if I answered your question correctly. Yeah. I span off in, in, in little tangents, but I think the lack of quality competition hurts us on all levels, from my level to the senior team's level. And is it possible? Yes, I want to say, because I've been doing it for years and we played Barcelona and we you know, we recently competed and beat Barcelona on European soil. So I think it's a matter of having a clear vision, having an identity, and ultimately making your players believe. If Greg can make his players believe that they can go to Argentina and beat Argentina, or they could go to the Azteca and win, or we can go to, you know, Qatar and knock off Spain playing a certain style of football, then we're going to have success, right? That's the ultimate thing. That's the thing that that I admire the most about BSA teams as well, right? We started the conversation that way. And, and if you're going to be the boss of a game, your players need to believe you. So under, hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm going to keep, keep going in the BSA direction. Under BSA, she didn't have this, this magical group of players. He kind of chopped all the prima donnas that were playing in Europe, high-level players, David Pizarro, and he started from scratch. And he promoted these young guys, Arturo Vidal, Alexis Sanchez, are the, obviously the household names now, but they weren't household names when Biasa took over Chile. So he made those players believe that they can do it. So I think that's a big component, not just for Greg, uh, not just for TAB and the youth national team staff. I think across the board for us that are working in Development Academy, whether it's at an MLS club or, or at an amateur club, you know, get the best out of your players, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask. I only got a couple more questions for you. We've gone on a long time, but no, shoot away. No, hey, all, I I got nothing but time for you. Adam. Okay, wonderful. How, um, why do you think the U.S. failed to qualify for the World Cup? Like, like, what's your sort of elevator pitch explanation of it? Wow. Uh... <laughs> It's so it's so crazy, Adam, because I I was actually visiting my parents' house that that last day of qualifying and and like we were just in shock watching the game. It was the same day I think that Argentina qualified to the World Cup, having to come back and beat Ecuador. So I went to watch the game there, and then we tuned on the U.S. game. And the last thing any of us ever thought was that we were going to be eliminated from the World Cup. So you know, not being on the inside there, not being on that staff, not knowing the feel of, of the, the players that day, it's hard to give a definitive opinion on why we failed that day specifically. 
I mean, on a global scale, I think, you know, obviously there's so many problems we have to work on to improve our product here. And instead of criticizing, I want to be part of the solution instead of, I guess, giving a full blown opinion that that will alienate many. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, that's fair. Talk about talk about three four three a little bit. It's uh it's a coaching curriculum that you and your brother Gary put together. Like, how involved are you in that, and and what are your hopes for for it? So I don't even know the inception of that. So I want to say maybe a decade ago, uh, started a blog. I think Gary started a blog to kind of, you know, express you know express concerns and educate in terms of, you know, the problems here domestically and why, why we're not in a powerhouse and how we can get there. Right. And then we published, you know, my Barcelona youth team playing this certain brand of, of football that, that, that we admire. And, you know, it kind of created a storm where everybody's like, Oh, wow, this is incredible. You know, how is this possible that a youth team here states I could play this way and whatnot. And that kind of, kick-started the coaching education thing so how can we reach more how can we benefit more people and and kind of grow the the influence factor right so we went in that direction and and in terms of my involvement ever since i've been at the the galaxy it's been very very small there's no time right my my yeah. days are consumed full time with with my my galaxy commitments if there's ever a time in the schedule in the summer which there's a very small break or in the winter or christmas break we would hold uh we would hold conferences and and invite all our members and and you know kind of do have some sp uh, guest speakers we had hugo one year we had some people from spain a different year yeah i mean the involvement's small at the at the moment but you know in terms of educating uh, our followers or anybody who who's willing to listen or sees the game similarly we're an open book to to kind of help out right that's the way i see it and i think we're all evolving i think we all have to grow with, with the game and, and constantly challenge ourselves. So the current youth coach or the current level of coach that, that, that is starting to have success in, in, in our country, I think is, is a, is a coach that's hungry for information, right? Mm -hmm. If we, if we talk about Lucci and, and what he did at FC Dallas Academy, and now he's been afforded the opportunity for the first team, I think Lucci has grinded to get to where he is. I think Lucci is a guy that went on this French course that has his Peruvian background, the way he sees the game. And, and it's a guy that, that over the years we've, we've had our competitive battles and duels. And I just admire that his team have an identity and their intent and their reflection of him, Adam, hmm. if I'm dancing in circles, let me know. But you know, something that when I first started coaching, my first assistant coach, John Esham, told me and some that stuck with me over the years is the team is a reflection of you, right? Your team is a direct reflection of you. If you're soft, your team is going to be soft. If you're not competitive, your players won't compete. If you're an assassin, your players will be assassins. If you're intense, they're going to be intense. So that's something that, that, you know, and obviously in the role models that I've had and, and seen, you know, firsthand in, in Barcelona or in Pep or in Biesa, or even, you know, here domestically, I'm, I'm naming Lucci right now, for example. Like, those are the guys that their teams are definitely a reflection of them. So, yeah, if, if we can help any of our members at 343, whatever we can do to, to, to help, we, we're an open book. Okay. 
I got to ask this one. Your brother is known for his outspokenness on Twitter. And I wonder if that causes you problems and if you ever have to tell him to shut up. <laughs> so, yes, obviously, yes, he, he speaks his mind. And, you know, a lot of people that don't know, they think it's me talking. And, I'm, you know, so when, when someone approaches me and I'm like, hey, listen, that has nothing to do with me. His views are his views. Yeah. My views are my views. Sometimes they're similar. Sometimes they're different. We're, we're different people. So has it caused trouble? You can say yes, and that, that it's rubbed people the wrong way. And, and people talk about perception and things like that. Ultimately, Adam, like I'm going to, I'm going to blaze my own trail. And, and, you know, I remember a guy that's kind of running Chicago fires first team. Now he was at Chivas USA as a president. Now he's like the GM Nelson Rodriguez. Yeah. You know, he appreciated me. We had, you know, similar cultural upbringings in terms of our Argentine American. He's like, Brian, like perception is important because, you know, the guys that make decisions here domestically are always going to be worried about that. But ultimately, you know, what I've seen of you and what you can accomplish, you're going to make it, you know what I mean? Whether your brother speaks or doesn't speak, you know, you do your thing. And, and that's a guy that stuck to me in the past and, and some that stuck with me, that message, like, Ultimately, Adam, if I'm being frank, you know, I think I've accomplished a lot in terms of my, my youth development and, and, and career there. And absolutely, I think I think I'm capacitated to take the next step. And, and somebody's going to say, let's give this guy a shot. You know what I mean? And it's not going to be because my brother may or may not speak out of line at times. Right. I think it's going to be more so of, hey, the guy has has produced quality over the course of his his career and he's been consistent and it's not going to come or be frowned upon because Gary speaks what he speaks. If that makes sense. It does. Right. It's hard. And and the last thing I'll say about that is, and I've shared this with, with my employers, wherever I've gone is, you know, having not been like we discussed earlier, having not been a high profile footballer, you know, growing up here stateside, having never played in the league or in the national team, you know, the only way that I could get to the position I am today or where I want to be tomorrow is, is outworking everybody else and, and leaving no doubt that, that what I bring to the table is equal to, if not superior to, to my competitors. And that's the way I see the game. That's the way I, I try to instill the passion and love for the game in my players and, and my staff. And I mean, I, it's been successful to date. I, I, I just wish the, the process would be more accelerated. Uh, to take that next step in my career as well. Yeah. Well, what is that next step? Where do you, where do you want to be coaching in five years, 10 years? What's, what are your ambitions? No, that's obviously the ultimate ambition, Adam is, is to be a first team coach somewhere, right. To, to be able to manage and affect the players and the staff and, and have an opportunity at that level on the daily. Right. The other thing that we didn't really touch on is, is, from my upbringing, how important the national team is. In Argentina, you know, having been in, uh, I consider myself somewhat Argentinian growing up here in, in, in the U.S., since I didn't live in Argentina, I can't really identify with a certain club. Even though I follow River, I always have. Like, I didn't grow up within River and supporting River and going to all their games. What I did grow up is, is what I mentioned to you, the national team. So yeah. to me, you know, the national team, the U.S. national team, which is the country that, that I was born in, is everything. And, you know, I want to see it succeed. I want to contribute. And, 
and one day, you know, that's the ultimate objective is to to manage our, our senior men's national team. So those are the, the long-term goals. And short-term, I, you know, I re-signed a deal recently here at the Galaxy, and, and I'm a guy that, that, that honors his contracts and his words. So, so on the short-term, I'm, I'm going to continue to do what I do best here at the Galaxy, and, and that's, that's compete and, and produce uh, professional soccer players. Would you want to coach the U20 side or the U17 side if Tab moves on someday? No. Well, if, if yeah, if my contract is up at the Galaxy, hypothetically, and, and, and I'm free to go, I, w- I would love to, to be involved being on the U17s and, you know, leading that group to a World Cup, leading the 20s to a World Cup. That's a dream, Adam. And, mm-hmm. and hopefully, you know, I know it's baby steps, you know, for the most part here domestically. So, if that leads to the ultimate objective of, of managing the senior team one day, that's that's what we want to do. Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you from me and from all U.S. fans for the work you've been doing. I mean, Alex and Alex and Uli are key parts of the U20 side, and I know there are tons of Galaxy players coming up through the ranks. Uh, thank you for all your hard work. Thanks for being on the podcast. I. Before before we end, I should ask, uh, did I forget to ask you anything really important that you wanted to talk about? Uh, no, I thought I thought we covered a lot. I mean, I think I think we went through most things that that I, I was expecting to to discuss with you. So, no, Adam, on my behalf, thank you. And and listen, I think all of us together, we're in this together, and we continue to to chip away to to get our senior men's national team. You know back into the world cup obviously on a short-term plan and and long-term why not aspire to to win this thing right this, this has to be our objective as a country is not just competing not just getting to a quarterfinal or you know or, or getting out of the group let's go win this and and i think we're we're finally starting to get there there's a lot of obstacles there's a lot of excuses which we always talk about excuses being for the weak in our environment we just got to get past those excuses and, and, and perform and produce at the, at the highest level. And I think we're capable. Yeah. I, this, this conversation has been much more encouraging than I thought it was going to be, Brian. So thank you for that. Too. <laughs> no, I'm an, I'm an optimist. I'm not, I'm not as pessimistic as, as maybe I'm perceived to be. <laughs> yeah. That's probably an unfair perception. Um, thank you. Thanks again. And uh, good luck with the game this weekend. Adam, I appreciate it. Hey, keep doing the good work that you're doing, man. You're opening up a lot of eyes. Appreciate again your time, dude. We'll be in touch.